You are listening to the Enormo Cast. To quote old headless Ned Stark, winter is coming, and you know what that means. Yes, it's time to unblock the number of that buddy who was still calling you to climb ice in June last summer and give in to your desire to scream and barf at the same time. Yes, ice climbing season is upon us, and though your fingers are destined to be both frozen and burning at the same time, your feet don't have to suffer so. Sportiva has a full line of big mountain boots, technical ice climbing boots, and boots that do nearly everything you'd want in the cold, cold mountains, short of apologizing for carrying you up there in the first place. So, if you must bash your feet against ice and snow, then check out Sportiva.com or your nearest high-end outdoor retailer for ridiculously well-made mountain boots. And remember, when you support Sportiva, you support the Normacast. Look, folks, I know you're saving up for that getaway to Spain, but your friends and family are going to think you're a total loser if you don't come up with at least a few gifts for the holidays. Hey, hey, enough with the sleigh bells. This year, maximize your gift-giving and holiday spending by supporting small businesses banging it out in the trenches. Entering Enormo at checkout gets you discounts at bonfirecoffee.com and peterwgilroy.com. And entering EnormaCast gets you a deal at belayspecs.com. And what's more, you'll be helping out a business so small, it's just a 5-foot, 6-inch, 140-pound guy sitting at his desk in his living room who may or may not be wearing pants. So happy holidays. And this year, don't be that dirtbag that only leaves rumpled sheets and a ring in your parents' bathtub. Cue the bells. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, a big place outside of town. That's a big nice. place. You sold that out. Yeah, I'll see. We really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. We'll make I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormous Cast. This is your host, Chris Kalus. It is November 27th, 2018, and this is episode 164 of the Enormous Cast, a conversation with Jamie Logan. And Jamie Logan was an important climber in the 70s here in Colorado, Boulder, Colorado, and also under her former moniker of Jim or James Logan, she was a major player in the book, Climb! Which, uh, you know, we haven't mentioned here on the Enormous Cast in quite some time. Used to get a lot, of, a lot of talk about that book. Famous book about the history of climbing in Colorado. One of the inspirations for me as a climber when I was coming up in the sport. Anyway, it's great to talk to her. And we'll talk about all that history as well as her transition to Jamie Logan in the last few years. Uh, coming up on this episode of the Enormous Cast. And on this episode, I threw three new commercials together. 
because it is the holiday times, a time of commerce and gift giving. And I'd love to uh, get your support, not only for uh, the small companies supporting the Normacast, but of course for our major sponsors as well. Just keep it in mind, if you're out there looking for gifts, if that can influence your choices, then you help out the Normacast. But if uh, material commerce is not your thing, there are also a couple things I wanted to mention just to think about in terms of giving in the holiday season. I got an email from a couple guys from Chico State, Kyle and Bradley, out in California, and they were making the best of a bad situation because college was canceled and they were on a climbing trip. But they suggested I give a shout out for the people suffering there from the Paradise Fire, the campfire, devastating, one of the worst in American history and probably in world history in terms of destruction of property and loss of life. And, you know, California is one of the major, one of the two major climbing states in the United States. I know Wyoming, Montana, New Hampshire, you guys are all there too. But in terms of just proliferation of climbers and cragging, you know, Colorado and California top the heap. Also in terms of Normacast listeners, actually. So... The rest of us in the climate community need to be thinking about California because these kind of fires and this kind of devastation in the Sierras is probably going to continue thanks to climate change and us trying to catch up with what that's going to mean for the environment and for our civilization, really. So if you're thinking about giving anything this holiday season, think about those folks out there in California that have been suffering. I'm sure you can figure it out online who to give to, do a little research. Bradley and Kyle suggested the Red Cross or Salvation Army in Chico, but do what you can. California is our gem, our climbing gem. Another idea to give that I've been using the last couple of years at the holidays is the Novik Cardiac Alliance, group of surgeons and nurses that go around the world, particularly to the Middle East and some of these war-torn places, and do heart surgeries on children. Okay, little kids that are born with heart defects, they go in and fix them, okay? And Libby Sauter, who was on the show a few years ago, turned me on to them. She actually does some of the trips as a nurse, works with the Novik Cardiac Alliance. And I'll tell you, go to the website, read a couple stories, look at some pictures, see these little kids all wired up with bandages and the looks on their parents' faces, knowing that they're going to be all right. It's pretty awesome. Slightly sort of connected to climbing through Libby anyway, but yeah, it doesn't need to be climbing to get your money. Just check it out. The website is cardiac-alliance.org or Google Novik Cardiac Alliance or find your own charity, whether it's connected to climbing or not. It's just a nice way to give a gift that doesn't end up just cluttering your shelves later. Okay, enough talking about your money and what you're going to do with it besides save it for yourself. And let's get to the interview with Jamie Logan. Sort of a two-sided interview, a lot of history, but then we talk about some gender identity issues. As in the last few years, Jamie transitioned to presenting herself as a woman, which was a tricky thing to do, or at least it felt tricky to do when you're someone who has such a legacy in climbing and such an identity, a previous identity that surrounds this macho masculine thing especially in the 70s that climbing was so yeah a little bit for everybody i hope you guys enjoy it 
Do you want to see an ice climber weep with joy instead of agony for a change? Then do the ultimate gift-giving kung fu this holiday and get them a pair of new ice tools from Black Diamond. The new reactor is the state-of-the-art in steeped mix climbing. The Viper is a vicious all-around mountain tool. And if you want a heart attack on your hands, big spender, wrap up a pair of carbon fiber Cobras and watch your thick-headed sweetheart dry tool the chimney with ease. Ice tools from Black Diamond really would be the ultimate climber gift, bringing pain and elation in equal measure, not unlike the holidays themselves. Check them all out, plus hundreds of other mind-blowing gifts at blackdiamondequipment.com or your favorite BDSM dungeon, I mean climbing shop. Black Diamond is a proud although sometimes slightly embarrassed, sponsor of the EnormaCast. We have a lot to talk about, you and I. We um, could, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's cool because we have, we, we have this, you don't, I mean, my perception of our relationship is that, you know, I knew about who you were because of Climb, the book. Climb the book. Which hasn't been mentioned on the EnormaCast in a long time. Okay. So it's back. Okay. Um, and you're, you know, you're, you're actually a very prominent figure in that book. Um, I, I was looking at it last night and this morning, there's even a picture, like a, you know, a portrait of you in there and some climbing photos and stuff. And so, you know, I knew this guy, uh, Jim Logan from that book. And then I started hanging out with your son randomly because we both moved to this town together. Michael Logan. Yeah. Michael Logan. And He's become one of my favorite and best climbing partners over the years, climbing together for, I mean, we're going on 20 years almost. Um, so then I got to know you uh, through Michael, not just in person, because I didn't see you very much with him together, but stories, you know, he would tell me, not just, uh, I mean, personal stuff, but also just, you know, about your climbing, about, you know, stuff you'd related to him about Vietnam, because he's told me some stories that you've told him about that. Um, and then, you know, along with everybody else in the climbing community, you know, now I know you as Jamie Logan. So, you know, kind of a wild arc, arc through this figure, this legend. And I don't know if, you, if that sits well with you. But to me, I mean, everybody in that book, because it was such this Bible for me, was like legendary. And so if I met them or knew who they were, it was like super cool to me. But it's funny because in, in my mind then, your legend status actually sort of, you know, then you just became this person. And that that happens anytime you meet, like, I wouldn't necessarily say hero, but you meet someone like that. So anyway, that's just kind of the preface of the way I've been thinking about, like, wow, this has been kind of a long and, uh, you know, interesting relationship that I've had with you. And um, I don't know where you want to start in any of those parts of this whole thing, but... Um, You're the... You're the boss. I'm the boss. Where do you want to start? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I actually was thinking about this morning. Did you, are you from Boulder? Is that like hometown birth all the way from, from the early days? Because in my mind, Boulder is a big part of who you were as a climber anyway, yeah. back in the day. So I grew up in West Texas and I climbed trees and fences and road cuts and stuff. And, uh, but I really wanted to get to the mountains. And so then when I was in high school, I got to go to a private high school in Colorado Springs for a year and a half. And then I went to Boulder to go to school. And then I flunked out because I was climbing all the time. Right. And I've lived in Boulder ever since. So I came to Boulder in 1965. Nice. So that's like, it's so funny because it's such an archetypal story. I mean, if, even if you go back and listen to the Normal Cat, 
I, I, we've had Texas. Oklahoma, yeah, Texas. Yeah, Oklahoma and Texas kids climbing fences, climbing trees, flunking out of school. Bridges. Yeah, in Boulder. Anything that goes up, we would climb it. Yeah. It's that's funny, the, the whole like going to, going, to, going to, whether it's CU or, you know, somewhere else, and then flunking out because you're climbing too much, that's also like a whole generation of Boulder climbers, sort of like all year after year just flunking out of CU <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or wherever it is. That's pretty awesome. So 1965, let's put a little context in what was going on in climbing um, at that point, do you think? Um, well, when I think back on it, I think of, of Leighton, um, Leighton and Dougal Haston being on the Eiger, on the mm-hmm. direct route on the Eiger where John Harlan died. Um, the El Cap routes were being done. Um, there was this sort of, our sort of total heroes were Royal and Yvonne and Chuck Pratt. And, of course, Leighton being mm-hmm. in Boulder. And Leighton was only 10 years older than me. But somehow we, he seemed like a, like a Greek god or something. Right. But like a crazy one. Well, I think you're climbing, like the height of your, you know, energetic climbing. And he was famous for having so much energy. Yeah. I mean, it is actually pretty compressed, you know. So 10-year differences can be huge in terms of, how much you've accomplished. Well, yeah, he'd accomplished yeah. everything. And then my group of uh, Wayne Goss, Larry Dalkey, Pat Amant, mm-hmm. um, Bob Copeland, a little bit older. We were actually really good climbers, but we kind of didn't know it. I think that maybe happens all the time, that there's this, this crew of 18, 19-year-olds who are actually better than the old people, right. but they don't know it yet. Right. Well, clearly. I mean, that's, yeah. the, that's the history of climbing. You know, it's like you guys... Yeah, I mean, every generation reveres the, the, I think, I mean, usually, maybe it's changed, but reveres the older generation, but you guys are ready to kick the door open on new ideas and yeah. new ways of doing things. Um, and then, so you ended up in Vietnam, so that must have interrupted this, because if it was 65 when you got to Boulder, yeah, I got, it couldn't have been much longer than, than you were drafted and went to Vietnam. Well, I got drafted, I essentially was in Camp 4 in 19... 19- 68. Uh-huh. I got drafted in 1968. And um, everybody was telling me to go to Canada and all this stuff. And I just wasn't brave enough to do that, basically. So I went to Vietnam. Right. That's really interesting you phrase it that way. Um, you know, Tim O'Brien's book, uh, The Things They Carried, you, this amazing novel kind of mixing reality and, and, and fiction, that's like one of his huge premises of going, he actually went AWOL for a few days. And then his, his thesis is, yeah, if I was, had more courage of my convictions, I would have stayed home. But since I was a coward, I left. Exactly. That's, that's exactly how I felt about it. Right. Yeah. And so what were you worried about? Like, you oh, know, I was just worried. Society's idea of who you are, your family, things like that. Family. My yeah. pa- my parents had made it very clear that if I went to Canada, they were never going to talk to me again. Okay, so this is something you were. So that's like pressure. Yeah. And you're a kid, you know. You're 18, and you're 19, and you're trying to figure out um, what your life would be if you were an, in Canada by yourself when you don't, you know. Anyway, so I would, yeah, never come home and never be a criminal home. on your home soil and yeah, right. I was so I was not brave enough to deal with it morally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so to speak. So what, I went to Vietnam. What was your experience there like? I was a clerk at a rear area and had 
one of the safest jobs and one of the safest places. We still got hit every night with rockets at about two in the morning. Right. They'd shoot rockets at us. But they weren't really shooting at us. They were shooting at the jet fuel tanks. It, they didn't really care about killing us. They just wanted to make it as expensive as possible right. for us to continue doing the war. And uh, anyway, and it was it was like being in prison. or It was like if you took an LSD trip and it lasted for a year. Uh-huh. And none of it made any sense. And then you got on the airplane and you're flying home and it still didn't make any sense. Right. What year were you there? I was there 69-70. Okay. So through the winter of 69-70. I mean, 70. that's like pretty much the height of of what was going on there. I mean, 68-69. Yeah. Like it was going off. It was going off. Yeah. And, and we blew a lot of stuff up. And, right. But um, anyway, but I came back and yeah. I was... Kind of a wreck. I mean, I went to San Francisco, and my friend Wayne Goss, who was my main climbing partner through the first 15, 20 years of my life, um, met me in San Francisco, and we drove to the valley. And I hadn't climbed. I'd been in Vietnam. I hadn't climbed for a year. And we immediately went up on a new route on the El Cap. Uh-huh. <laughs> on a, uh, and I felt really bad about it later because I didn't kind of realize that this was um, Kim Schmidt's and Bridwell's route. It was the Aquarian. Okay. And then... We were up there, and I led some um, pitch that they'd done with modern stuff, stuff from 1971, not stuff from 19... I had stuff from 1969, you know, aid was changing. So I nailed the section with the tips of pins that were in a quarter inch where I'd put, like, four pins in and then tie the whole mess off and then stand up on it and then do it again. And and then I just started crying. I'm just like, I don't want to be here. I can't do this. We were mm-hmm. six, seven pitches up, and I'm, like I just said to Wayne, this is not our route. This is Jim's route and Kim's route, and I don't want to be here, and I need to go away. Right. And we wrapped off and went, um, and I went back to Texas and was pretty upset. I didn't want to be an American anymore. I was going to go to Canada then, for sure, and I bought a truck. So out of, like, protest, in a sense. No, out of, I just didn't want to have anything to do with this country. Right. I was just like... What what are we doing going over here and killing all these people? Right. It's for no point. And um and everybody in the war was um nineteen and mostly poor, like half the people in the war are black, which is not half the people in the country. Um so it was you know, I had a deep sense of unfairness and wrongness and immorality about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I was gonna go to Canada and then I went to Boulder through Boulder on my way to Canada and um Saw some people I knew, climbed the third flat iron, and it all started, and I never left. Right. Been there ever since. Right. It took me about a year to get where I could lead stuff and not be scared. And it's just because it was a mess in your head about... It was a mess in my head. Yeah. I would wake up in the middle of the night just sweating in these horrible nightmares of being mm-hmm. back in Vietnam. And, mm-hmm. and that was without combat, or at least... That like, was without combat. You're not crawling through the jungle like the classic sort of... No. But just the... Yeah. Just stuff is blowing, right. blowing around, blowing yeah. up around you all the time. But right. yeah, just the, I don't know. It was, it was a weird right. experience. Right. So, so tell, tell me hard. about climbing then. And as it grows through the seventies, you're a big part of the, the free climbing push. I think that that mm-hmm. was that we now associate with with Boulder in the seventies in terms of free yeah. climbing and also climbing smaller routes as you know their own challenge i think that was like a big part of boulder climbing while climbing had been i think really this idea that okay we're whether we're bouldering or we're doing these small pitches we're 
we're climbing for the big stuff. We're all everything training. was about. We were yeah. going to go to the Himalayas and yeah. climb giant faces. And all of a sudden, there was this like whole scene where, you know, Aldo climbing, you know, pitches in Aldo were their own, their own sort of goal in a yeah. lot of ways. And that had started before I left. Just in in you know in '68. Um, I mean, we were doing it in the valley. In the I was doing it with people in the valley in the '60s, in the mid '60s, but. Um, so when I started, the whole idea was you climbed as fast as you could, and if it was faster to pound in a piton and pull on it, then that was what you were supposed to do. Because all you were supposed to do was go fast mm-hmm. and clean the pitches fast. And, and so it, that meant that if, if you had to stop and figure out a free move, you didn't do that. Right. But then um, Padamant, Roger Briggs, Frank Sacker in Yosemite, Royal was a big part of it. Um, started free climbing stuff for its own sake. And there was this idea that that's a cool thing. And like you said, it's not about um, going up in some giant mountain or something. It's about we're going to free, we're not going to do direct aid. Mm-hmm. And we also had by then, like I'd climbed with Royal with the first passive gear as early as 1967. Mm-hmm. And by then we all had our homemade passive gear. Like um, Chouinard hadn't made hexes and stoppers yet so everybody had their own rack that was homemade and um what did that look like it was like you wanted to use your rack not yeah like i want to use my rack not your rack like what was on it like what when you're saying you're make i mean we're talking like the the british thing of literally putting cord through nuts yeah literally nuts from bolts nuts from the hardware store on slings right and um, Jeff Lowe and I were talking about, we went through a phase of putting rocks in our pockets. Mm-hmm. So you'd climb up and you'd put a rock in and then you'd pound it down and put a sling around it. Right. And, and that's like got some, some Czech roots and I think some German roots. Yeah. The idea of the original chalk stone. Yeah. So we would put chalk stones in and he and I were talking, you know, him tapping it out on his computer because he couldn't talk anymore. But um, about how we do that. And the advantage of that is in that chalk stone is fixed. In the crack, so it's like a modern bolt. Oh. <laughs> I, just, I hope everyone's listening to this closely about what it was like to free climb in 1972 or whenever this was. Yeah. And there were some British nuts. That Next were... time you grab your ultralight cam, just think for a second that you were fishing into your pocket and like, oh, that rock's the right size. Drop it, it in and let it, you know, yeah. tinkle down into its spot. Yeah. And we were making little hexes out of hex stock. We'd buy aluminum hex stock and cut it up. We had nuts from the hardware store. Uh, David Rierk would make these really beautiful sort of wood kind of tube chocks things mm-hmm. that were really, I don't know how strong they were. We always wondered what would happen if you fell on one of them. You just didn't do it, though. You pretty much didn't fall. Right. And, um, and then we had these British pecs, which were, knurled hard steel and you'd put them in and move above them and they just fall out. So it was kind of brave, I guess. So it sounds like it wasn't some sort of fever dream that, that Chenard had about a, about this, the way a hexcentric is built. I mean, he probably, it wouldn't take you too far to go from a, a hex shaped nut to like, well, let's move these sides around to make it go in in a certain way. Yeah. And so we knew Chenard was going to make, um, we had a stopper then it was, it was called a Moak, and it was big, and it was a great, great piece of gear, a Moak, from Britain, with a big sling through it. So we knew that the idea of stoppers was a good idea, and we knew that hexes, we knew this could all be better. 
And I think we also knew, I was involved in making gear too. We all knew that Chouinard was going to do it better eventually. Right. So we were waiting for Yvonne to come out with the stuff. Right. Which she finally did. I'd look back at the old catalogs and see. But I think by 72 maybe, or 71, 72, he had um, a full set of stoppers and hexes. And then that sort of took over. Right. But we were free climbing pretty hard. Um, the grades, when I left, the highest hardest grade in the country was 510. When, when you I, left for Vietnam. When I left for yeah. Vietnam. When I came back, we had a new grade called 511. Nice. And, and I was like, well, I couldn't do that. I could barely do 510. Right. And then it's like, oh, wait, I can climb 511 also. And so we didn't realize that a lot of our 59s that were, are now graded, you know, 11BR. Right. That's right. what we thought was hard 59. Yeah, the 59 grade, it was. Um, you know, people kind of don't get it, but 5.9 mathematically is a larger number than 5.10. 5.10 mathematically is a sort of fake number because the zero doesn't mean anything. So you guys got, you guys got stuck at 5.9. We were stuck at 5.9. For a while. Because there were a lot of mathematicians that were climbers and they're like, no. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's the biggest number you can have of the fives. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. So anyway, but then they just threw that they threw that out because it just obviously we, we stopped making sense. Yeah. Needed a new grade, yeah. Because so. hard five nine was kind of all encompassing. Yeah, there was like yeah, exactly. So, so. and th- and that's the also and we'll maybe talk about this when we get to the emperor face, but that was also the big mountain. The hardest thing in the big mountains was going to be five nine eight two. Is that right? Five nine eight two. Five nine eight two. That five nine eight eight two was what we thought. If we were the best alpine climbers around and we were climbing as hard as we could, the hardest it could be was five nine eight two. Five nine eight two. Yeah. And there were no ice grades or mixed grades or anything. Right. That was just so. Every, it was effective language because everybody knew what that meant. It meant like, <laughs> be careful up there. <laughs> it meant like George Lowe almost died up there, right. and then he came down and said it was five nine eight two. Right on. <laughs> so that was in your aspirations as well. Was you know I said that that you guys had kind of moved on from this idea of doing big stuff, but you had and, and no. I mean, I think it still pervades at least traditional climbers today. Is that you know. I, I'm going to take, one day I'm going to take these skills to the big mountains. Um, and, and so you kept being Yeah, we still in wanted that. to do that. And right. we still had this idea. But now we had this other idea that free climbing in and of itself was cool. Right. And so I was on the South A in 1971. Mm-hmm. And I lowered out on the Enduro pitch, which is this incredibly beautiful corner. The left wall just sweeps away from you without an imperfection. And I was aiding it. And I said to my partner, this is a free climb. This will go free. And he's like, no. And I said, lower me out. And I had my big Robin shoes on and Mm -hmm. giant rack of steel pitons and hexes and stuff. So he lowered me out about 15 feet, and I free climbed back up that pitch, which is now 12B. Yeah. And I'm like, yes, somebody will do this. This is a free climb. Right. Somebody will free climb this someday. And no, and it's, it's, it's wild because it just takes these like, these incremental moments of vision like that. Yeah. And then it was, uh, you said it was 71? Yeah. Yeah, so eight years later, it was when when uh, Max and Mark were up there. Were up there. And, and really did a serious effort on it. And he led that pitch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah unsighted it. Unsighted that pitch. Yeah. Which is so, pretty amazing. Yeah. But, I mean, in climbing, though, especially as accelerated as things were then, you know, eight years is a is a massive amount of sort of, 
of especially ideas it, then. And do. Yeah, 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 it was changing, and the equipment was so getting fast. better. Shoes yeah. were getting better. I mean, when I did the nose in 1968, um, it was with a hip belay mm-hmm. and a piece of sling wrapped around my waist because right. we didn't have harnesses. And so by the time I came back, there were harnesses and there were belay devices. And it was like, oh, this is like better stuff now. Right. And a lot of that was picked up in those intervening years in Europe. Yeah. By certain climbers like Robbins and people like that. Royal was really um, good about going back and forth from Europe to the U.S. and mm-hmm. bringing stuff back. Right. And then saying, oh, look. We, look at Jumont. Look at We can use this. Yeah. Stuff like this that. the hell out of a prostate <laughs> or whatever. Or, hey, this yeah. has leg loops. <laughs> Leg loops were a big. Yeah. Leg loops really help. It's not going like, to destroy your kidneys every time you fall. Well, also if you fall and you're hanging in space, you're not just going to st- not be able to breathe. You actually can sit there in your leg loops. Right. That would be yeah. a good thing. No, I mean, it, it's it's fun to have for climbers of my generation and younger to have these thought experiments about what it would be like. And I think every once in a while, somebody climbs something with a swami on just for like old timey sake, but. Nobody's out there like, I want to see what it's like to take a 30-footer on this swami. Yeah. Um, that's, a, uh, that's a thing of the past. Or to catch a 30-footer on a hip belay. Right. Yeah. That's so, a thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the dynamic, like, I don't know. Well, the other thing that happened in the early 70s. You show me your hand scars. Let's see. Like. <laughs> yeah, they're bad. It's all just scar. But uh, the other thing that was happening in the early 70s is waterfall ice climbing was being invented. Okay. So we had free climbing was starting to happen where people were saying, you know, Backer was free climbing everything out there. Well, so John Long, Bridwell. Um, but at the same time, Jeff Lowe and Mike Weiss and other people were inventing waterfall climbing, basically. Because an ice axe used to have a pick that wasn't bent down. Mm-hmm. But then there was stuff, once again, coming out of Scotland, these these horrible tools called pterodactyls that just your hands would just be bloody after a day of using them but they worked and so that was fun too to start realizing that you could climb ice the same way you could climb rock mm-hmm. you could climb vertical ice so um and so i started doing some alpine climbing i right. went to europe and climbed the eiger and that was the second american ascent oh, i put my first you climb that way with bob wade from aspen okay. Yeah. And uh, we did everything wrong you could do, but still had a good, a good climb and uh, put my first ice screw in on, right. on the Eiger. <laughs> what, what do you mean you did everything wrong? Oh, Give me an idea what that means. Well, we went there. Because everything, doing everything wrong up to that point on the Eiger North Face got you killed. Like, okay, we didn't almost that without way. like you know almost uh, if you look at the history of the Eiger, it was just like you know yeah yeah one after another party you know the nor or the the Mordwand, they call it the murder wall yeah so, well, yeah, I, so what did you guys was was more we like, did one thing right so we <laughs> that really that was the important we, part that we didn't it, get yeah. killed so we went there just to see it and we woke up in the campground down below and it was a beautiful day and the high had settled over Central Europe. And we just looked at each other, and, and there was nobody on it, and um, thought, well, we have to do this. So then we um, went up that afternoon on the train and went over to the face at like 2 in the afternoon, and then went up to this bivy that we'd read about in the, the book of the Eiger. Um, we didn't actually have a topo or any guide stuff or anything, but we'd read the White Spider. Sure. So we're like, yeah. Horror is the White Spider. Yeah. yeah, the White Spider book. 
So we went up on the face to what's called the Swallow's Nest Bivouac, which is just past the Hinterstoyser Traverse, and turned out to be kind of a slopey ledge that dripped all night. And we had these horrible Chenard foam back clothes that we had in wool. I had a canvas pack. So we had pretty much had exactly the same equipment that the... 1938 guys that had, except the ice axes were bent down a little bit, you know, right. and stuff. When I thought that was kind of cool, and um, so we slept in the in the at the shitty bivouac, and then we went up the next day and across all the ice fields, and we got up above the ramp to a place where there's a pitch called the waterfall pitch, and it was running water like six inches deep, and I started leading up it and. But also, I'd been climbing some with Dougal Haston, and Dougal had told me, and Dougal was the best British climber. Dougal was probably regarded as the best alpine climber in the world at that moment. Anyway, mm-hmm. Dougal had said to me um, that if I got to that above the ramp in the middle of the after, two o'clock in the afternoon to don't go up there. Don't leave the top of the ramp after two o'clock in the afternoon. So I remembered that, and I'm like, okay, well, we're going to bivy at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on an alpine face, which is kind of unheard of. Right. Partly because we didn't want to climb six inches of water, and partly because I've heard of this from Dougal, and we're sitting there drinking tea, and this rockfall with stuff the size of, like, Volkswagens comes right down that drainage. Just mm-hmm. like, <sighs> It's like, okay, well, this was really a good idea right. to stop. <laughs> yeah. So a little piece of advice from the master. A little piece of advice from the, the master and saved our life, actually. Right. Because we stopped. Because right. Dougal and, and Leighton had told me to. So Dougal and Leighton had said, don't do that. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do that. And uh, then the next day we climbed to the summit and came down. Right. And it was a little drier in the morning, too, then? The it was frozen. Problem. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. dry. It was ice. Right. And... By now, we've got like 15 pitches of ice under our belt. So right. we're like, yeah, we like this. We can cool. climb this ice. That's pretty audacious, though. Yeah. Yeah. And you're a pretty young man at that point? Uh, 20-something. Yeah. Well, the 20s. Yeah, 20s. That's when it all gets done. So Those we climbed, crazy things. Yeah, we climbed the Eiger and came back. And, uh, and then, actually, right after that, I went up into Canada with um, Mike Weiss and some other people. And just Mike Weiss is one of these climbers that nobody ever heard of, who whenever Jeff Lowe did something famous, pretty much Mike led the crux. <laughs> <laughs> just the way it was. Right. And it, there's all these guys out there. Um, then it was guys. It was all guys who uh, I appreciate who never talked about it or never published anything or didn't do anything, mm-hmm. who were really good climbers. So like whenever I was following Mike around up in, in Canada, I'd be like, can we use the rope now? Right. And um, like, no, this isn't hard enough yet. We have to go up another thousand feet. And I'm yeah. like, really? Right. That sounds like me climbing with Hayden Kennedy. <laughs> yeah, it'd be like with Hayden the same thing. <laughs> right. It's like, can we, can we use put the rope some gear now? in now? Am I allowed to? Like <laughs> Yeah. The we could belay? Right. Yeah. No. Um Anyway, we went up there, and we went to Mount Robson, mm-hmm. and came around the corner, and I saw the emperor face, which is like, okay, well, this is the Eiger, except twice as big, and now this is 1974, 5, whatever it was, and um, this has never been climbed, and I want to do this. This is what I want to do, is climb that face. So, so that became a project, and we were ice climbing then. We were doing waterfalls, like Bridal Veil Falls, so 
I did the third ascent of Bridal Veil and other first descents around. But there was no internet or there were no guidebooks or anything. So it's actually you didn't really tell people. Mm-hmm. You just climbed stuff. And it's all the time I read a new area that somebody has a mountain project and all the great new routes they found. And they kind of might mention that there were pitons they found there. Right. You're like, like, I know where those came from. Yeah, we climbed that thing out in 1968, you know. Right. Um, so anyway, it was an exciting time. Well, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, uh, how, I don't know how to frame this question, but uh, I'm always curious. I have these ways that I think about the community in climbing today. Okay. And it's, it's, you know, it's so much bigger. There's so many more parts of it than it was um, when, when you guys were climbing. And... You know, and I, I always, in the show, I have this sense of how important it all is. And, and climbing is just so meaningful. And we talk about it on here. And then I have these other moments, you know, late at night where I'm like, God, this is a waste of time and stupid. And, you know, why I'm, you know, in the 80 feet of this sport route, I just, I, I'm not allowed to hang on this bolt. And like, you know, I play with all these rules. I'm like, this is just dumb. Like there's people suffering in the world or whatever. So I go back and forth. What was your sense or you guys' sense of, you know, the self-importance and the importance of what this thing was that you were dedicating your life? Was it like us in that we, we, we wrestle with the, the two parts of it? Or I think I was a, little, I was a kid. And, yeah. um, and I think um, I loved climbing from when I was a little person, and I always loved it. And... Um, and I don't know why. I just wanted to climb up stuff. It was mm-hmm. always, that's all I wanted to do. And um, so I don't think I had an existential crisis. And we thought we were super smart, all of us college dropouts in Camp 4. And we would read Herman Hesse and Heidegger and stuff and imagine that we were having significant conversations <laughs> about life. So that's the same as it is now. That's the same. It's like, yeah. <laughs> and what we were really, we're just a bunch of kids that like to climb up stuff. Right. You know, I hiked in last week with Wayne Goss, who's 73, and we went to Chasm Lake to look at the diamond. Mm-hmm. I'd wanted to climb it again, and Wayne was going to climb it with me, and it didn't happen through a series of things. But we were standing there looking at it and uh, looking at, Wayne did more first descents than I did, but I did some, and up there, and uh, we were looking at it, and I said, you know, we were just kids. And when Roger Briggs and I did it the first time, I was 19 and he was 15. Oh, man. And he didn't bring a coat. And, <laughs> and we never talked. Because his parents weren't there to bring his coat, which is what he would have had happen. Like. <laughs> I don't know. But he didn't have a coat. We didn't have any food, really. We had never discussed how far we might get up the route, or if we were going to bivy or where just didn't dawn on this. We were just, we had enthusiasm. We had a bunch of pitons and we were going to climb D7. You had a driver's license. That was the key thing. Yeah. (laughs) That's the first thing you said to me. I said, do you want to climb the diamond? He said, do you have a car? I'm like, yeah, I have a driver's license and a car. Nice. (laughs) We can do this. (laughs) That's awesome. So, and just to put the significance on what you and Wayne were doing is that you and Wayne did the first free ascent of the diamond in uh, the middle 70s. I think 75, but right. I'm not so sure. That's the significance of you guys going back up there to check it out again. Yeah, um, we wanted to, to go back and redo what right. we, could we redo what we did in our 30s mm-hmm. and our 70s? And the answer was no. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it happens. <laughs> like, whatever. Um, 
But no, I just, but yeah. I was there and I was looking at it. I was like, we really were just kids. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was, without it was, much of a clue. Right. You know, super cool. Well, let me, let me ask you, let's recount a little bit about, uh, about Mount Robson um, and maybe use that to kind of move on out of the, out of that part that of your time. climbing and probably do a little fast forward to now. Um, okay. So to tell me a little bit about that climb, because that's, Again, when I'm thinking back of like who I knew Jim Logan to be from history, there's this free ascent of diamond, you know, all that boulder stuff, and then freaking, you know, Emperor the Emperor face. face is a big deal. Plus, you were climbing up there with mugs. Um, and, you know, so again, here you are just like flirting and flitting through this whole thing with all these, you know, all these greats. Like you're getting advice from Dougal Haston and you're, you know, cores there like you know showing you the way and then but it sounded to me like mugs stump you know was maybe on the other end of that because you were jim logan well mugs was younger yeah and nobody ever heard of me and we were going to go three of us had made a plan to go climb the hummingbird ridge which had never had and never will have i think a second ascent um so in any case, we were going to go climb the Hummingbird Ridge. And then one of the guys going on it was from Salt Lake. And he called and he said, there's this guy named Muggs. And he's young and he's really strong and a good climber. And he wants to go on the Hummingbird Ridge with us. And we said, sure. So there were, then uh, we were four. And then we got up there. And it was just desperate, this endless ridge that went for 26 miles. Um, and we're just, no, maybe it was only 15 miles. But anyway, really far. So... When we got up there, it turned out that the other two couldn't lead, but I could lead and Muggs could lead. So Muggs would lead for a day, and then I'd lead for a day. We were running out these pitches on a 300-foot nines. So you'd just go out 300 feet, and if it got steep and you couldn't climb it with your pack on, then you'd take your pack, pound in a pin or something, and leave your pack, and then lead the pitch, and then lower down the pitch, and then zoom her back up the pitch with the pack. And It was pretty hard climbing and really exhausting. 26 miles, 300 feet at a time. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Moving down the ridge. And so finally we got to this point where we said, if we don't get onto the easier climbing today, we're done. And it was Muggs' day, and there was this place where the ridge had fallen away, and it was this gap in the ridge, like 300 feet across and 300 feet deep, full of blocks like the size of school buses, but you could see through them with this pile of snow on top of it. Mm, sounds lovely. And so Muggs, that was Muggs' lead. So Muggs basically just walked out the top of the pile of snow, and at the other end of it, there was a 15-foot gap. So he was standing there on top of the pile of snow. It was 15 feet to snow on the other side, and he just turned back and put his arms up, and we're like, come back. So we, we wrapped down a couar. We waited for a plane that we didn't know was going to come because we didn't have contact with anybody but the plane eventually came and took us away but in that mug said that the reason he'd wanted to go with me on that is because he wanted to be a famous climber mm -hmm. and it was very straightforward about it he wanted to be a famous climber he wanted to be able to have people go with him go with people to do great things and his he had decided that i was going to climb the emperor face because i'd been going up there with uh with duncan ferguson um was in there with jeff and mike weiss and Wayne Goss one time, um, and there another time with with Mike. Um, Duncan and I didn't get very far. I went on the winter with Jim Danini, and 
uh, Baker's gallons. And anyway, I've been trying it. And so he had this idea. I guess it was common knowledge that I was more serious about it. Other people were trying it, but I'd gotten up higher on it, except for Callus and Kensler some years before. We'd gotten way up on the face and then an epic retreat. So it was a known thing that there was this giant face that had never been climbed. And I guess it was that Muggs knew that I was serious about it. So he said, would I go with, could he go with me on the emperor face? I said, yeah, you're a really good climber. We'll go on the, next summer we'll go climb the emperor face. So he and I climbed together all that winter, climbed and skied, climbed waterfalls all over. Um, And then that next summer, we went up there with the idea that we were going to stay under the face until we climbed it. And um, so we went in, we went up a little bit, it stormed, we came back out, we went and got more food, um, didn't have any, the bivy gear tore apart, just general fiascos and getting ready. And then one morning we woke up and it had snowed for a couple of days and it had been cold and the face was iced. It turned out to be very thinly iced, um, mm-hmm. like there was a lot of stuff that was a half inch thick detached from the rock. But we went for it. And so we climbed the first day up um, snow mixed. I put together a fairly devious line, kind of like the 1938 line on the Eiger, trying to find all the soft spots. And I had a picture of the face taken from a helicopter that showed a white streak way up high that looked to be a couple pitches long. And I thought that would be the key of how to get through the upper head wall. So my whole plan was this back and forth, up and down, to get to this white line on a photograph. So the climbing was 60 degrees snow to vertical rock steps with um, really thin ice. And so then you'd have to climb 30 or 40 or 50 feet of ice that was from an inch and a half to an inch thick, mostly, um, detached. <laughs> no, go, no pro. And you just would climb that. And if you waited, started to wait one tool or your foot more, it would start to drift in it. The stuff would start to come apart underneath you. It was scary climbing. Yeah, it's not terrifying. <laughs> it was terrifying. So we did that th- that next day. A two five nine five nine eight two. <laughs> <laughs> so we did that, and uh, um, we got uh, way up high on the face, and then um, uh, we came to the white the white stripe, and it was a piece of ice stuck in a corner that was two feet wide, and the most perfect water ice ever. And I remember I was leading it, and Mug started yelling at me. And I'm like, what? And he said, put something in. I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess I am 60 feet out. Because it just was so easy. Right, all of a sudden. Oh, yeah, yeah we're just, like, like climbing this, this vertical. Like, what do I need whoa. to worry about? Right. Like, oh, yeah, I'll put a screw in. And we did that, and then um, we got up really high on the face that day. And then um, we chopped out seat in this ice in a, in a gully. And then it snowed all night. It started snowing. And so it avalanched on us all night long. And you would, like, the avalanche would get behind you and push you off, your, off the seat and onto your tie-ins, you know. So mm-hmm. now you're in the sleeping bag covered in wet snow. You'd have to sort of excavate you out of the snow and try to get the, out from behind you and get back on this seat you'd made and try to sleep. So we did that all night. And then the next morning, Muggs led up a pitch to the base of the final headwall that had to be surmounted um, to get us out of there. And that was my pitch. And you have to kind of put this in the context of we have no weather report. We have no contact with anybody. Nobody knows we're up there. It's like, and 
we're in this, all around us is overhanging down sloping shale or limestone or whatever that stuff is. And so it was like if we were going to, and we're 8,000 feet up, so we're not like wrapping off because mm-hmm. we only have 12 pieces of gear. <laughs> so it's... Some, what was the thing with the M, the big giant chalk stone you were talking about earlier? Oh, a Moac? Yeah, no, a couple Moacs and a... <laughs> no, we didn't have Moacs. We had pitons. Okay. <laughs> and um, we didn't take any, any nuts. We didn't think that was an appropriate place for nuts. So we had like six ice screws right. and 12 pitons. Right. And so, um, but it was, it was like I had, there's this thing in the mountains of you, you kind of got to take your pitch. Right. You know, and that was my pitch. So I started up it, and um, it's the hardest mixed pitch I ever led. And I went up, and there was an icicle, and I put a sling around the bottom of the icicle and then clipped aiders into it and stood up on that. Oof. And then I'm holding the hilt of this icicle, which is only four or five inches in diameter where it's attached to the wall. Yeah. But I'm now standing on the bottom one-inch size of it. Right. And so I tap, tap, tap on the top and put a screw into that, which went in like two inches, and then tied it off and stood up. Oh, it's that kind of climbing. That sounds harder than A2. <laughs> anyway, well, it's hard to grade. So, and then I got a good one-inch angle in, and I lowered off the pitch and back-cleaned everything because I needed all my other pieces of gear. And um, started back up it. And I think I was on the pitch for about maybe six hours or maybe longer. And the upper part was snow-covered rock, slightly overhanging, I got a knife blade in, and then above the knife blade, I didn't get anything for a long ways. And it was just dry tooling, cleaning snow, taking my gloves off, climbing on the rock, going up eight feet, going down, going sideways, going up again, coming back into the same place with the handhold on my left hand, trying to go up. Finally, at the very top of it, um, there was a place we always climbed with a hammer, ice hammer in our right hand and an ice axe on our left. It was a bamboo shafted bamboo chenard axe we heated up the end of it and bent it down to make it steeper and i was raking the axe through this snow there was a little ledge up there and i'm raking it through the snow on the ledge and i get it to stick on something in the snow and so then i get it to stick in the same place and i get it to stick in the same place like four or five times but now i'm 40 feet out on overhanging rocks stemming and so i can pull on it but i don't want to pull on it too hard because if it pops i'm going to fall and so I made the decision that I was going to 100% commit to it. So I fully weighted the axe. I got my right hand up on top of the axe and mantled onto this snow shelf and uh, lived. Now my, I, I have a great climbing partner named Michael Logan because <laughs> without that moment, he would never have existed. <laughs> Actually, the, the thing that is morally wrong about this is he already did exist. Oh, he did? He did. Oh. So... So I shouldn't have been there with children, but that's another discussion. Anyway, and then I put a couple pins in, and then mugs came up, and I said, I'm done. Take me to the top. Right. I just, yeah, mentally, it's like there's nothing left in the well. Nothing left in the well. I think I can climb the rope if you can get it to go Mm -hmm. up. And he rolled over the top right there and up and had to tunnel through a cornice and stuff. And and then on that ridge that night, lying in my soaking wet down bag, shivering with no food or water, kind of thinking about it, I thought, that was pretty close. I thought, you have to decide if you're going to keep doing this kind of stuff because you almost died. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't think if I'd fallen, Muggs and I would have died because, um, you know, I think falling 40 feet onto a knife blade in that situation, probably with crampons on. No, I was 40 feet above the knife blade. Right. It would have been an 80-footer onto a knife blade. 
And then below that 10 feet was a one inch angle and that was it. And when I pulled the pack, the, when I hauled the pack, um, it swung out about 15 feet. So mm -hmm. the pitch overhung right. 15 feet in a rope length. It was pretty hard climbing. And then it got reclimbed later, 28 years later. Right. Steve, Steve House climbed into it not knowing it was the original line. And then they were bummed because they were doing a second ascent instead of a first ascent. And then I was really excited because I wanted to know how hard it was. Right. And so... Did they find the ice? The, they did find the ice. It was still right. there. And they talked about that. Right. So they climbed the same white streak. Mm -hmm. And then they climbed the same last pitch. And the way they knew it was, was because when they came into it, the knife blade was there. Really? Well, we'd left the knife blade. That's sick. Yeah, yeah. I mean... That and we left that anchor. huge face. They, they, I mean, it, I guess it's a testament to your line because if they got funneled into it, it was the way to go. <laughs> they didn't know that um, that was the line we'd picked. Cool. Or I'd picked because Muggs was just going where I told him to go, kind of. Anyway, so we did that and we lived. And, um, but then Steve House did it. And then I talked to him on the phone and he said it was M8. All right. And he had protection because he had cams. Where does that compare to 5'9"? <laughs> I think that's hard for 5'9". Well, we would have been... I don't know the M grades, 5'8", yeah. 5'9", M8, M9. Well, that like would have fit actually with the hard 5'9". Right. Versus okay. regular 5'9". It would have been plus. 5'9 plus. plus. Right. Yeah. Awesome. So you, I mean, so it was visionary, you know, desperation. If I don't climb this pitch... We're going to die. We're going to die. Yeah. So, I mean, that's classic mountaineering history yeah. right there. So. But but that also meant that on that ridge, while you're in your wet sleeping bag, you, you kind of mentioned to me before we started talking on tape that that was, you know, probably the end of your alpine climbing in your mind, even though you went on one more expedition. Yeah, I went on some more stuff, but it was just like my heart wasn't in it. Right. And I really thought if you keep doing this kind of stuff, you're going to be killed. Sure. And um, that I didn't want to be killed. And isn't basically. that like the, isn't that the, the divergence that, I mean, happens, you either realize that, you know, almost dying over and over again means you're probably going to. Going to. And, and of course, you stop, mugs, yeah, and or of course, you move it down, down a notch, or you're that person who's like, no, I can just keep defying these odds. I can keep winning this game. And, and yeah, well, or mugs. actually, on, when I was on my way to Vietnam, I climbed Half Dome with Dougal Haston and I was going to go to Vietnam like in two days. And so we did it. We did it the first time ever to go up the slabs. He was like, why would we walk around? So I'm like, I don't know. We walk around. I'm like, no, let's go straight up from the bottom. So we climbed straight up the slabs, got on Half Dome, um, went to a bivy somewhere up there. And then we're sitting there bivvying. And I'm like, well, if you keep climbing the next new route on Mount Everest, you're going to get killed. And he's like, yeah. And we had a long serious discussion about dying and what it was worth and he said very clearly to me that he knew he was going to die in the mountains on a climb and that that was okay hmm. which is another way to look at it right that he was very clear. I said you're famous you've had dinner with the right. queen you can go back to London and open a climbing store or a bookstore because you'd rather have a bookstore than a climbing store right and he's like no that's huh. what I did yeah I guess that's life. kind of what I mean you you, you... The writing's on the wall, and if you decide to read it, I guess, is the way it's... If you decide to read it, and there's a lot yeah. of people who go, no, that won't happen to right, me, because right. I'm but, too good. But Dougal was like... He was like, yeah. And I'm then he was killed skiing. Right? He was killed a year yeah. later right. in, a, in an avalanche in right. a gully, right. skiing. So anyway, so that was, the, that was really the end of that. And I had kids, and I realized, I really felt deeply that I had screwed up 
by going to that level when I had children. Right. I thought that wasn't right, and I need to stay alive for Michael and the other ones. And so, um, so I quit. Okay. And also, I had this woman I was living with who I really liked, and um, she was pretty clear that this was not okay anymore. Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in reasonably. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Still, like a very reasonable request to yeah. not climb. 5982 on big mountains anymore. Well, I still now. went into the Buckstein Glacier with mugs to try the east face of the okay. moose's tooth. But right. It was like, yeah, no, that was a bad plan. All right. Well, listen, we, we are cranking along here. Awesome history, and I wanted to get that stuff. But we have a lot to talk about since then. And I'm actually, we're just going to skip uh, the, this, the period from there to about five years ago. Um, you had a family... I had a family. Or, I went to architecture school. Yeah, I became architect. Right. But and I didn't climb very much. I climbed some, but not a whole lot. There's there's an interesting <laughs> part of this that I mentioned a little bit in the early part, in the fact that we're talking about Jim Logan. Um, that was the the person I read about, and when I met Michael, you know, that was Michael's dad. Is Michael's dad, however you want to put it. But let's talk about the 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 big part of your life now. Um, climbing still a big part of it, but I think a more important thing is the transition. Um, how long ago uh, did you openly talk about a transition to uh, a different gender, different name, um, changing your life completely? Well, all my life I had been terribly confused about gender, and I'd always liked to wear women's clothes, and um, and it was this huge secret, and I was terribly afraid somebody was going to find out. There was no internet. I didn't know there was anybody else like me, kind of. You're like, and you just feel weird. I just felt like, well, and, and it's what's wrong with in me? In pop culture, the characters in the movies and things that did this are not... I not mean, well received. No. And no. so it's, you've got this, this model out there. Of, the model of that everybody makes kind of fun of you yeah, and, right. and you'd be weird. And uh, I thought, I don't know about this or what to do. But then... Um, and I told my first wife, and she pretty quickly divorced me. And then um, then this woman I was with, Sherry, I, she knew that I liked to wear women's clothes, and it didn't upset her. And, um, but she said that I had to go to therapy and work this out. And this was maybe like eight years ago mm-hmm. or something. And, um, not, and was she go to therapy and work this out on that? Fix it? Or, or just, I see you confused and pain, go to therapy and find out what you need to do. Yes. I mean, so more of a positive, like, yeah, you need to deal with She this. believes in therapy and therapists. Right. Okay. She's like, okay. you, you got to But work. it's not like some 1950s thing where it's like, you got to go fix yourself. No, no, not okay. at all. Right. No, it was like, you need I to. I just wanted to make sure we knew what we were talking about. Yeah. yeah. She was like, I needed to figure out what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I always had been, to some extent, unhappy because I think I had this huge piece of me that was unrequited or not worked out or whatever. And I didn't know I wanted to transition. I just didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know what was going on. So I started going to therapy. And over the course of the therapy, it was became, it was like little steps, like um, figuring out that I, well, regardless, I didn't want to have a beard. So going through thousands of dollars and hours of pain to do electrolysis to get rid of my beard. And so I was kind of gradually going into it and I was Going out wearing women's clothes more and more, and um, so this is like the first public. I'm in the world. I'm in not the world. Behind doors, a really right. terrifying. God, it must have been 
really, that. really terrifying to wear women's clothes and go to Whole Foods. And um, anyway, it was really hard. But over the course of some years of therapy and stuff, I decided that I would be a happier person if I was, the way I like to put it is I wanted to be the same person every day. I wanted to wake up and be the same person. I didn't want to look in my closet and see like one foot of women's clothes and 10 feet of men's clothes and not know what I want to do and want to wear the women's clothes, but um, I don't can't go to construction wearing a dress. Right, you're an architect. Yeah. Yeah. But now I go to construction wearing a dress. But um, So anyway, I decided I wanted to transition full-time and take hormones and do it. And that was really hard for my wife. And so she went to a lot of therapy. At one point, actually, she asked me to leave, and I actually came up here to Carbondale and stayed for a while. And then I moved back into the basement, and then we sort of... It was really hard. And so I had a therapist, she had a therapist, and then the marriage had a therapist. And eventually we worked through it. It was expensive. <laughs> yeah. It's not as expensive as getting a divorce. Okay. So, okay. so we did that. And, and, uh, and I was at, on the board of the American Alpine Club. And um, at some point I said, okay, well, I'm going to the annual dinner in FEM. Okay. And um, so I paid for a table so I could control my space right and um some of my girlfriends helped me uh get dressed and um and so at this point uh, there's a bunch of everybody in the climbing community gradually had found out and knew i'm sort of leaving out when i had to come out to my kids to michael to everybody mm-hmm. and how just you don't want to screw up your kids so that was pretty terrifying but they were all great actually and all the climbers were great and uh so then I went to the American Alpine Club board meeting and um, had my table. I don't remember who I had. Um, Jen Fleming was my date, my one plus, and uh, Cedar and Nellie, I think. But anyway, it was a whole Boulder crew. Right. And it was really, really terrifying. But at the same time, it was fairly liberating, actually. And so there was a bunch of years there when it was hard to feel self-confidence. Right. And I didn't climb very well for a few years. Um, but, um, and then would anybody hire me to be an architect anymore? Right. Would anybody climb with me? Um, would this screw up my kids in some way? All these big questions. And it turned out that um, everybody's okay. And I think I'm better. I think I'm happier. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm Changed my gender legally. Right. Um, Your name's changed. My name's changed. Um, And recently I've kind of become a little bit of a spokesperson for the transgender community, Mm -hmm. which I think is okay because I think I present a role model to uh, weird kids. You know, I was a weird kid. To weird kids that you can be yourself and... It's okay. Right. You can have a life. And right. I feel like I have a wonderful life. And I have really good clients. I design all the movement climbing gyms. And for- well, a cool thing, too, is that, and it may, maybe, I, again, I, you know, I put you on a pedestal in climbing, what we just talked about for 40 minutes. But, you know, you, you had an extraordinary life with 
family with this amazing climbing career, all these incredible experiences, you know, so it's not like you were, you know, a shut in weird kid, you know, not able to kind of express himself in the world, which a lot of kids that, that are dealing with this and also maybe more so in the past, but in certain communities in the, in the uh, gay community too, they, I think they live if they're, if they're, closeted or behind the scenes they live in this way that's not they Healthy. can't express themselves yeah so you i think the role model part of it is a little bit of that that you you were conflicted and you had you know countless problems that you know you, you aren't going to go through or talk about right now probably but you still had this very expressive very adventurous very amazing life and and so i think that's a good part of the role model even if you were having trouble um you were strong enough to be like going forward with a successful life. Yeah, and I think my life's much better, but it still was became really hard to walk into the my climbing gym sure. that I designed with sure. this community that I've been a big part of for a very long time, to walk in there wearing a blouse, right. and a bra, and stuff. And actually, I have all these wonderful girlfriends now mm-hmm. who are, some of them are almost as old as me, but um, actually all ages when I think back sure, to it. Yeah. And so I really like hanging out with the female climbing community. Sure. And um, I really value all of them and respect them. Mm-hmm. But then I think I have this kind of a role, too, of being sort of the, the grandma mentor. I've uh-huh. had lots of conversations with these really great 514 women about what they should do for the rest of their life. The answer is kind of always the same. Go to medical school. Right. <laughs> Um, anyway, um, so yeah, Margot Hayes asks me for advice sometimes. And right. I appreciate that. That's awesome. And I actually sometimes have good advice. Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So let me ask you a couple of questions. I, I watched this somewhat intimately because of my relationship with Michael. Yeah. And I think I was pretty early on the people he talked to about it when you told him, mm-hmm. and you know, that's your son, you're his dad. So that's not easy. Um, to have this, you know, this person who's the, you know, somewhat of the role model of masculinity, you know, to put that on its head. So uh, we, so I've been watching. I know some of the the, early, the the friends, these girlfriends of yours that you that you're talking about, and what they did in terms of of um, giving you their own counsel, mm-hmm. advice from a younger generation, which is an interesting dynamic, I'm sure, to be getting advice from, you know women who are 20 and 30 years younger than you are. Right. So um, in your sense, I like to believe that climbing community is sort of a special place and uh, maybe a more open place, but maybe I'm naive about that. But do you feel like it was a good place to be um, versus if you were just, you know, your, your cohorts were in the architectural world or your friends were, you know, within that world, but you had this other place. Do you think it was a good or... or, Well, it turned out to be good for me because everybody was pretty accepting. I mean, one of the first climbing things I did was to go to Homo Climbtastic, the gay climbing convention in Bentville, West Virginia, in the middle of July. Isn't that uh, funny? (laughs) Yeah, so I went with Madeline Sorkin, and we went out there. A bit um, humid out here. (laughs) Climb with all those guys. Fortunately, the rock is so grippy that it's like, yeah, okay, I can still stay here. Um, no, that was, but that was really good. And um, so it was just a gradual thing of being around people and being in the world mm-hmm. 
more and more. And then at some point, I'm just like, okay, I'm going to change my name. I'm going to change my gender. I'm going to wear a dress to fly on the airplane. And uh, that's what I'm going to do. Right. And everybody's been great. It's sort of pretty interesting to come from sort of old white male culture and then have access to this uh, group of empowered young women mm-hmm. and um, how they see no boundaries right. for themselves. And uh, um, it's pretty wild to get to see both sides, as it were. So I really appreciate it, it. It must have helped a bit to be in Boulder, too. And, and as someone who's a spokesperson now, you know, somebody's experience in some other part of the country in another city could have been quite a bit different. Because, I mean, I thought about that a bit in terms of like, well, if you if you were going to do this, I mean, there's probably not many communities more open to that kind of thing. Or am I, again, wrong about that? Well, I think it's changing really fast. Right. I think when I started, um, there were no transgender people on television. Um, it was still kind of a what? You know, kind of a totally undercurrent. And how long, sorry, the, the, the sort of initial, uh, your wife saying. I think it might have been eight about, years ago. Okay, yeah, possibly. Cool. Sorry to interrupt. I just so, wanted to put a timeline on yeah. that. Because it has changed rapidly. It's changed yeah. incredibly rapidly. And then we so, took a little step back a yeah. years ago, but whatever. Yeah, so I had to go to a wedding. Went and didn't have to go. I went to a wedding last week of people from Midland, Texas, where I grew up, the most conservative town anywhere. And, um, and I was worried about it. I was like, what are all these people right, I'm out think? of my bubble here. In Way the out of the yeah. bubble. <laughs> and, um, and I think this is a universal thing. Our people are intrigued. Well, women are intrigued. The mm-hmm. women are intrigued and are interested. The men, not so much. They're a little like, well, why would you do that? You know, but, but they're not mean about it. Right. But the women are genuinely interested. Mm-hmm. So it was okay. It was like the worst possible thing. So I think, but you still have some huge percentage of the homeless kids in the country are gay and transsexual who've been kicked out of their homes by their parents. Right. So there's still a a big deal nationally. Um, some huge percentage of those kids have tried to commit suicide. So... Um, so I guess I don't mind being public. I think it's good because mm-hmm. I want to say, no, you don't don't commit suicide. Yeah, Just keep plugging. Yeah. It'll, it'll be okay. Yeah, and you may have to move move to New York or Boulder or someplace. Right, but you'll find your tribe. Yeah, so, I mean, I listen. I listen to Savage Love podcast. It was one of the early podcasts that I really got into with Dan Savage, and I mean, that's always just like he gets the call from the kid in the Midwest, and he's what in do a small I do? Town. He, yeah. And he's like, first of all, move. Yeah, like go to an urban place, and then you will find you'll find your people. Yeah. And and again, I think about Boulder as just—it's <clears throat> not New York City, but it's you know pretty progressive and pretty open and um, a nice place to be. Yeah, I think the the biggest response I've gotten in Boulder is one of curiosity and interest, mm-hmm. genuine, right? Not, and I've been in Boulder my whole life, so I'm part of, of a much bigger community than the climbing community, right? I know the people in the grocery store, right? Right. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I thought, I've thought about it a lot, and partially because, again, of being intimate to what was happening with you um, through Michael, and just thinking about this idea that somebody, you know, and let, let's pick anywhere, someone in Pennsylvania, 
wakes up each day like angry or concerned about someone like you doing something like this in Boulder, Colorado, or two men wanting to get married in San Francisco. Like these people, they're still there. Yeah, they don't just, want those guys to get married. It's so weird that that their mental energy of yeah. their daily life has this weird concern about these things. It's a that, total waste of mental energy. It's so strange. Like who the fuck cares? Like stop. And, and it, you know, look at your own life and how many ways in which you could probably improve it today and use the mental energy for that. You know, I, so, but anyway, I, and that's kind of my thing. Like it actually, like my back is like tensing up when I think about the idea of that. But, you know, one other thing that can probably happen or probably you feel is that because it's such this big political thing, it's, it, it's in our news all the time, you know, a lot of times there is a little bit of a comfort thing. I knew you as this legendary figure. I, I, I knew you as Jim Logan. Michael's dad was this great climber. You know, I always make fun of Michael as he's like, you know, he's climbing royalty. He's so much better so, climber than me now. You know, there can be this anxiousness on even a part that a person who's totally like, you're perfect and you did what you needed to do. But you know what I mean? Do you feel that sometimes? Like... Because there's all this stuff around pronouns and blah, blah, blah. And there's a little bit of a landmine world around it. Um, but that probably just breaks down pretty quickly. Well, at first, like when somebody, when I'd be, I thought, very beautifully dressed and very feminine. And somebody would say, can I help you, sir? Right. It was just devastating. Right. And then gradually, I'm like, yeah, whatever. I'm just me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and now I kind of understand how people gender people, other people. Well, and it's, it's not hard mean. to just throw it out It's something window, we, yeah. we do is gender people. But I don't know. I just think I'm happier. I'm better. I'm a better architect. Um, I'm actually climbing really well. I have a mini fantasy that I can climb 513 again. All right. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> climbed really good on one the other day. I'm like, huh. Nice. Maybe I could do this. Um, then it doesn't make a difference if I do or not. It's right. just like, oh, it'd be fun to be 72 and climb. I'm only 71 now, but I thought, well, if I had this for a project, it would mm-hmm. take me till I'm 72. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, there's, it's just talking to you that I realize there's all this, there is a lot of symbolism in, in what we do and what we accomplish. And, you know, even when you were talking about women's clothing, like the, I think what you're talking about is such a deeper part of who you are, but the, the women's clothing is the symbolic transition. Yeah, it's the symbolic. It's what people see. Right, right. And makeup. And, and it, but obviously, we're talking about this this thing inside of you that was, you know, it was much always deeper it was, than what you were wearing. Yeah, it was always there, and mm-hmm. I always had a deep lack of understanding about women. They were always very terrifying and curious to me. Oh well, welcome to the club. You know, I know. <laughs> but now, see, I get to go to happy hour and um, talk about stuff, and I'm learning. I'm, right. I'm. Learning a lot, which is pretty fun, right. actually, and understanding more about, um, like, the super huge comment my wife will say to me when I'm doing something wrong or that she doesn't like. It's like, that's really masculine. I'm mm-hmm. like, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so so you, can take, you can take shit about it, too, then. You're okay yeah. with that? Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So what would your... I mean, you just said like this being the spokesperson becomes a part of your life to the, you know, the weird kids. You know, is there, a, is there like a, a, a very much a, 
a piece of wisdom or or thing that you would you would sort of put out to somebody on this podcast who has anxiety about any of these things, whether it's whether it's uh, sexual orientation or gender or any of these these things that maybe they're facing. Yeah, I think it's, it's something I really deeply believe is that if you can get to where you feel good about yourself and you can look at people and smile, they will smile back. That I think people sense someone else's uncertainty and unhappiness and not knowing how they fit in. And if you walk down the street like that, you're going to get weird reactions just because like, what's wrong with that person? But if you can get to a place inside yourself where you can walk down the street and smile at people. And um, I mean, as some, as a bartender said to me very early in this, I said something about, Oh, well, I really want to be a, a girl more than a boy. And he said, well, you just got to own it. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you own it and you're happy and you can smile, everybody else will be good. It's just the way the world is, I think. That's been my experience anyway. And what do you know about seeking resources in terms of, again, you had, you, you, you had the, at least the, the benefit of, of a maturity. And money. And money. Yeah. So what about that person who's not in Boulder, who's not comfortable um, who's not got a family that that mostly just said, "Okay, we're we're moving with this, move on through this with you." Uh, what do you think in terms of your advice for their step forward if they're really feeling? Well, trapped? I think yeah, if people really need resources, like in Colorado, there's the the um, LGBT center in um, Denver that's big and well funded and has a lot of people mm-hmm. and counselors and a lot of resources, and I think that's probably accessible to most people in the state. It's probably a lot harder if you're in this southwest corner and you're that far from Denver. But there's a lot of organizations now. There's a lot of of groups. Um, You know, in climbing, you can... um, There's gay climbing clubs in New York. (laughs) But but still all over. So I think that um, the Internet has profoundly changed all this because I think anybody should have the ability to go on the Internet... And find resources, right, right? Basically, yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of people working on this. Less isolation, yeah. Less so isolation. So it's, it's one small positive of the internet. It's a big positive of the internet. Cesspool, of yeah. Crap. When you're in a minority population and you want mm-hmm. to look out and you want to found, find brown girls to climb with because you're a brown girl, mm-hmm. you can right. Google brown girls climb, and there you go. Um, and I think for LGBT youth, I think there are a lot of resources, and they just have to be brave enough to call them up, awesome, or text them, or whatever. So, last question, because you got to go. You actually have a presentation on this stuff in a few minutes, because we're at the No Man Land No Man's Land Film Festival, um, which again, you have this like wild both sides of the coin, even in terms of perspective, being here. What uh, What's your kind of feeling about your climbing legacy? Um, it, 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 you know, as I'm putting you on a pedestal as, as one of the one of the bolder uh, royalty. Um, well, I never never tried to have a legacy, but I guess I knew I wanted to climb the emperor face for a legacy. Right. Mostly when I was really young, I was just massively excited excited about it. And so mm-hmm. when somebody said, "Do you want to climb the first free ascent of the Crack of Fear with Chris Fredericks?" I'm like, "Yeah." I want to do that. And so I just always wanted to do it. That's from Climb. That's from Climb. Yeah, you were inside of it, supposedly. I was pretty back in there. I was skinny. (laughs) But, um, 
Yeah, I just always had this wild amount of enthusiasm and it had nothing to do with gender. I just loved climbing up stuff. And when somebody said, do you want to lead? I was always like, yeah. And I don't think I knew how good I was. I didn't realize that that um, Royal Robbins was giving me the lead and that Dougal Haston was having me lead a pitch because he didn't want to lead it. Oh, right on. Or that Jim Bridwell was like, when we were doing ice climbing, I was up with Jim Bridwell and uh, a bunch of the Valley guys were in California, we in Colorado then. Anyway, they were like, well, Logan, you lead this pitch. And I was just excited because I thought that meant I got to. And I didn't realize it was like, yeah, no, we don't want to. Right. <laughs> there isn't any protection. <laughs> Well, that's a pretty good legacy right yeah, there. I think that's a good legacy. But I knew I wanted to climb. I thought I'd been a good climber, and I thought I had the skills, and I thought if I climbed the emperor face, that would be a legacy. Mm-hmm. And it is. And it is. Yeah. And I'm quite proud of it. It was cool. All right, folks. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Jamie an old friend for sitting down and I'm glad to hear that she found the climbing community to be open and willing to accept her that makes me feel good I can continue to live in this naive bubble where I think that the climbing community is kind of like Disneyland only everybody has better abs much better abs and as you're escaping the holiday fray out of doors or maybe even indoors at the gym Keep your wits about you. Watch out for things. Watch out for each other, particularly this time of year. And make sure everybody's doing okay out there. Not just climbing, but, you know, just in general. It's a good time to reach out. But if you are climbing, please remember to be safe, communicate, and of course, check your knot. Come far, pilgrim. Feels like far. Were it worth the trouble? Huh? What trouble? 